0: Let me just kind of bring you up to date. We're in this series called Veiled. We're, uh, we're about two-thirds of the way through it right now, kind of in the home stretch and kind of reaching the climax of the story. Esther is a really interesting book. We've called this series Veiled because God's name is not mentioned in the book at all. It's not, it's not there at all. And that's been problematic for, for some people through history. Uh, Martin Luther um, wasn't sure that this book should be in the Bible. Uh, John Calvin, a theologian who... Whose, whose writings impact us still today? Uh, uh, John Calvin never preached a message from the Book of Esther, uh, which I just find really interesting. And it's because this in this story, God isn't mentioned by name, but He is so clearly involved in every aspect of what happens there. If you're new, if you've not been around, let me, or, or if you've been here, let me just kind of review where we are. We're in uh, we're in week five, and and uh, just talk you through. It's 486 BC in Persia. Xerxes is the king of Persia. Persia is one of the world's superpowers at this point in time. Um, Xerxes throws this party for his whole kingdom, but for the capital city, gets drunk, and as a result of getting drunk, divorces his wife, a a queen named Vashti. She gets uh, thrown to the side. God's working in that because Xerxes then launches this search for a new wife, and he chooses this beautiful young woman named Esther, who's Jewish. But she hides that fact from both the king and um, everybody who's in the palace. Esther was raised by her cousin, Mordecai. She was, she was orphaned when she was a child. And, um, and so she's raised by Mordecai. She becomes queen of the, of the nation. Mordecai works for the king. Um, he works outside the, the king's gate. He's there doing his stuff. And at the end of chapter 2, it describes what, what happens when Mordecai, in his position, hears two guys who work for the king that decide that they're going to kill the king. They have a plot to kill Xerxes. Mordecai passes the word up to Esther. Esther tells the king, the king investigates it, and those two guys get killed. Mordecai doesn't get anything. It's kind of the end of the story at that point. Last week, we were in chapter 3, talking about what happened after that. Mordecai has, or Xerxes has all of these advisors, and one of his advisors is named Haman. Thank you. Somebody remembered. One of his advisors is named Haman. Oh, uh, yeah, you guys don't have a whole lot of... um, Passion against Haman. Haman's a bad guy. Haman becomes, he goes from being one of the advisors to being the chief advisor uh, for King Xerxes. And, um, and, and in that role, Xerxes says everybody needs to bow to Haman because he's in this exalted position. Um, Mordecai, as a Jew, doesn't bow to haman and so when he doesn't bow that that just uh torques haman to no end and haman decides that he doesn't want to just punish and kill mordecai he wants to kill every jew in the kingdom so he goes and talks to xerxes he uh he convinced uh, he writes an edict that xerxes signs off on but basically what he says to xerxes is there's these people who are part of our kingdom that, that are subversive. They're, they cause dissension. They don't obey the laws. They're bad people. We need to just kill all of them. And Xerxes says, okay, I trust you. That's great. And at the end of, uh, at the, end of the chapter, they sit down and have a drink and uh, seal the fate of the Jews. Uh, that, uh, that leads us into Esther chapter 4, which is where we're starting today. So if you've got the app, be sure and pull that out. If you've got a Bible, you want to pull that out, that would be great. Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, of the edict that was going to destroy the Jews, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting, weeping, and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So the word goes out from the capital that says, every Jew is going to be killed. And what do you think the Jews did? They went, ah, And, and, and they began to weep and wail and cry. Mordecai especially. They did something that we don't do in our culture at all. They put on sackcloth and ashes. For most of us, when we grieve, we tend to go quiet and inward. We don't make a big show of it. But in this culture, it was, it was, uh, it was something that, that you showed to everybody. And so the sackcloth thing is kind of interesting. It was typically made of goat hair. It was uh, goat hair that was woven together into a garment, and it was incredibly scratchy and itchy and uncomfortable. And the thinking was that just like when you fast, every time you feel pain, uh, hunger pangs, it's a reminder to pray. With sackcloth, it was kind of like every time you moved and were uncomfortable, that you were irritated, your skin was bothered. Every time that that happened, that that just reinforced that sense of grief or um, humility that you wanted to communicate. Um, it, it, uh, it said to other people, you know what, uh, we need to repent. We're, uh, sometimes uh, sackcloth and ashes were used for repentance. And so they wore this. As a kid, uh, growing up in church, when I heard about this phrase sackcloth and ashes, I don't know why, but in my mind, I thought sackcloth, oh, that's like the burlap feed bags on the farm, right? And so in my mind, I thought, oh, they cut a hole out of the top and put it you know, over, the, they cut a hole for the arms and they wear these burlap bags because it's sackcloth. That's not what it was. But if you think about wearing burlap, it created the same kind of impression, If having burlap, it would itch, it'd it'd be terrible. Sackcloth, that that was true. They poured ashes on their heads, ashes on their bodies, on their clothes, so that everyone would know that they were in mourning. Everyone would know that they were in repentance. Um, Sackcloth and ashes. Verse 4. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend to her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. The king has this rule that says, if you've got sackcloth and ashes on, you can't come in the courtyard. You can't be close to the palace because it's going to be a distraction. Everybody's going to be paying attention to the person in sackcloth and ashes and, and lose focus of their job. So they have this rule. Mordecai can't talk to Esther because he's in sackcloth and ashes. Esther can't talk to Mordecai, so she has one of her trusted servants, this guy named Hathak, uh, pass this message along. She's, she's appalled that Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes. She doesn't know what's going on, so she sends him clothes and says, put these on so that we, uh, essentially, so that we can talk about what's going on. Mordecai refuses that um, and it sends, sends that message uh Back to Esther through Hathach. Verse 6. So Hathach went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him, uh, incidentally, Esther had. Yet, uh, don't, don't miss that Esther was oblivious to the edict. She didn't know why Mordecai was, was in mourning. Um, verse 7. Mordecai told him everything that had, pro- that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Mordecai works for the king. He's connected to everybody who works for the king. And so he knows the details of what's happened that's created this edict. Don't forget that Mordecai was the cause of Haman's hatred when when he wouldn't bow to Haman. And so Mordecai communicates back up to Esther just like he had when he knew about the plot and says, hey, this is what's going on. There's this edict that has gone through the entire nation that says all the Jews are going to be killed. Um, As a matter of fact, Haman's at the center of that. Haman offered to pay $12.5 billion in silver to finance to finance that edict going out through the entire country. Um, and, uh, and Esther, now you know what's going on. There's, a, there's one other thing that, that's in there that when we just kind of read the story, we, we miss. It, uh, the end of verse 8, it says that, that Mordecai told Hathach to instruct Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Esther is the queen of the nation, Right? She's, she's the queen of the nation. And Mordecai says to her, You've got to go talk to the king and plead for our people. When we read that, it's like we think, Oh, is that a recommendation? And in the Hebrew, what it really says is that Mordecai said, Esther, listen. You, you have got to go now to talk to the king. Mordecai went parental with Esther, even though Esther's the queen of the nation. Esther had the ability to just dismiss him, but it would have been a sign of incredible disrespect to do so because Mordecai had become her father by adopting her when she was orphaned. Um, Just some pieces there in in the story. Verse 9. Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther instructed Hathach to say to Mordecai, All of the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court, "'Without being summoned, the king has but one law, "'that they be put to death "'unless the king extends the gold scepter to them "'and spares their lives. "'But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king.'" Esther says back to Mordecai, "'Hey, look, I know that you want me to go talk to the king, "'but you don't understand. "'Anybody that goes to the king "'that the king hasn't asked to come first, "'they get executed.'" Um, that law was actually a law that had come from the Assyrians, uh, the Assyrians had implemented this thing and, and it really kind of makes sense at one level in that the king, they didn't want the king to be bothered with trivial stuff. They didn't want anybody and everybody to be coming to the king to say, oh, can you fix this problem for me? Um, so they passed this law that said, unless the king asks you to come, you can't come. And if you come, you're, you're going to get killed. Uh, The historians say that there were guards actually in the palace, in the presence of the king, that if anybody approached the king without permission, they were there ready to kill them on the spot. Uh, Heads off, do do that whole thing. The one exception was the king could extend his gold scepter when somebody came, and that meant that they wouldn't lose their life. Esther said, Mordecai, if I go and talk to him, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And then she says something really interesting. She says, you know what? Um, Things aren't really good on the home front here for me. It's been 30 days since Xerxes has called for me. It's been 30 days since I've had any interaction with the king. Esther's got to be saying, you know what? I I don't know if I looked at him cross-eyed. I don't know if I burned his dinner. I don't know if he didn't, uh, you know, if he doesn't like my new perfume. I don't know know why, but he has not called me for 30 days. If I go and talk to him and he's mad, I have not a prayer uh, in the world that I'm going to live. Esther said, realize that the stakes here are huge. If I go, uh, I'm going to die. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai says, Esther... Don't think that just because you're queen, queen, you, th- this edict isn't going to apply to you. You're Jewish. You're going to die. And Mordecai says, you know what? God is going to deliver us. The only question is whether you're going to be a part of it or not. And he says, God has put you in place, in this place at this time for this very moment. For you to step up and, uh, uh, and approach the, the king. Um, you know, I, I love the game of chess. I, re, I remember uh, junior high. I learned how to play the game of chess because in chess, it's all about getting your pieces in the right place at the right time to finish the game. Right? You want to have the right stuff ready, the right combination of pieces, so that you can win the game. God, in this, is 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 working through this process. He's working upstream. He's working in the white space. He's working even though he's not mentioned so that the pieces can be in place at the right time to save the Jewish people. Uh, let, me, let me give you three takeaways from this, this, uh, these 14 verses of chapter 4 of Esther that, that I think are important for us. The first is this, comfort, comfort is a dangerous place. When I read this and, and began to study it, the, the, the first thing that just really jumped out at me is Esther is queen of this nation. She lives in the palace. She's the queen of the nation, and she doesn't have a clue at all about the edict that has gone out and that her nation is going to be eliminated, annihilated on one day in less than a year. Um, when you're comfortable It's easy to forget those who aren't. When you're comfortable, it's easy to lose sight of what's going on around you. Esther forgot in her comfort. She she just didn't know what was going on. Um, You know, when you have resources, when you're in a place that you've got some money in the bank, you've got some flexibility financially, it's easy to forget what it's like to not have enough money to buy antibiotics for your child when they're sick. It's easy to forget what it's like to to reach down in your pocket and have $2.17 and have to go buy gas. And that's all you can buy because that's all you have. When when you're comfortable, when you live in a community for a long time, when you work um, in an industry or uh, for a company for a long time, it's easy to forget what it's like to be a new person in that environment that doesn't know what's going on, that doesn't know where things are, that doesn't know who to talk to about things. When you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, it's easy to forget what it's like to live and to not know grace and forgiveness and mercy. It's easy to forget what it's like to not have Jesus to talk to, the Holy Spirit inside you working. When you're a part of a life group that has just been a dynamic part of your life for lots of years, it's easy to forget what it's like to be a person who's, who's trying to follow Jesus but living in isolation. They don't have anybody that they can talk to to pray for them. They don't have anybody that they can talk to to ask questions of. Comfort is a dangerous place. And what what makes it especially dangerous is in our culture, we lift comfort up as the supreme goal of life. We want to live safe and comfortable lives. One of the great things I think about moms, and moms, let me just say, happy Mother's Day uh, today. One of the great things about moms is I think that mo- that God wrote it into the DNA of moms that they don't forget. <laughs> they, they don't forget what it's like to be a little boy or a little girl. They don't forget what it's like to be a teenager. They don't forget what it's like to be a young mom trying to figure everything out for the first time. Moms are great. Um, Comfort's not the goal, though, right? Because when we're comfortable, we forget. Second, the second thing that I want you to walk away with is, is is this: ignoring a crisis is not an option. Ignoring a crisis is not an option. Esther wanted somebody else to step up, somebody else to to intervene on behalf of the Jews. Esther said, it can't be me. I just want out of the limelight on this one. It's not me. Do you understand that you can't hide from God? That if God has chosen you for a purpose, for a role, you can't hide from him. Think about Jonah for a second. God says to Jonah, Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh to preach repentance to those people. And Jonah says, I don't want to do that. And he takes off in the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. He heads for Tarshish, hops in the boat. And um, you know the story from there. You can't hide from God. Um, You know, in, in this whole concept of ignoring a crisis That's not an option for us as followers of Jesus. Sometimes I think that we give up a place in the game for a seat in the stands. You know what I mean? Sometimes we're down on the field engaged in the battle and we think, ah, I don't want to do this. I would much rather be sitting way up there drinking my Diet Coke, eating my chips, watching the game from a distance. Don't give up a seat in the game. Or don't give up a place in the game for a seat in the stands. We think that the absence of conflict equals success in our life. You know what? If I, if I don't have any problems, if I don't have any conflict, that, that, that's, that's where I want to be. In reality, what it may mean is that there is nothing in your life worth fighting for. If there's not conflict. Because if there is something worth fighting for, you will be engaged in a battle for that issue. It's easy for us to think. You know what, God's uh, God's plan, uh, God's God's judgment is going to affect everybody else. It's not going to affect me. It's easy to think. Oh, the gu- the laws that the government makes—they're going to impact other people adversely. They're not going to impact me. It, it's not true. Mordecai says to Esther in this process. You know what? You're a part of this. God has called you for this. You can't ignore. You can't ignore this crisis. He says to Esther, "If you." Uh, if you remain silent, you will perish. Um, I, I'm a part of the baby boomer, baby boomer generation born after World War II, and so I only know of World War II from conversations with my with my father, with my grandfather, and the things that I r- read in books. But one of the things that I think is interesting that's relevant to this whole question of Esther and this issue of, of um, being chosen by God for such a time as this is when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Um, Up to that point in time, the United States had been neutral. They had said, we're not going to get involved in that war. But when when Pearl Harbor was bombed, instantly the United States had skin in the game. And the amount of people in what we now call the greatest generation, the amount of people that enlisted to be involved in that war was incredible. Because they said, we can't keep silent. The impact is too great. It's too close. We can't keep silent. We've got to get involved. And they enlisted and fought the war. The third thing that I want you to walk away with from Esther 4 is this. Don't miss this. Your life matters. Your life matters. Your decisions matter. The choices that you make matter. God placed Esther in the right place at the right time, and her decision to engage or not engage was hers alone, but God had had moved those chess pieces Pieces He had put Esther exactly where she needed to be because her life mattered. Everything that had happened in Esther's life up to that point had prepared her for that moment. God had been working through that whole process. Your life, your life is not insignificant. I know that that's that's two negatives in there to say your life matters, but sometimes I think we hear this voice in our ear that says, you know what, your life doesn't matter. You, you know what, you don't do anything. You work at GM. Yeah, you know, you work in a restaurant. Your your life doesn't, You're a computer, your life doesn't matter. Anytime that you hear the voice that says your life is insignificant, know that it's the voice of Satan in your ear. It's not the voice of God. Your life matters. You know what, your wiring may be different than mine. Your wiring may not be like Esther's. Your wiring may not be like, like uh, Laminda and Denise's. But Esther can't go where you can go. I can't go where you can go. Denise and Laminda can't go where you can go. Your life matters. God has you in, in a place. He has you in place for a purpose. Everything that has happened in your life upstream has been for this moment for what's out in front of you. He has strategically put you in place. You know, there, there are those plaques that you see in people's homes, in Christian bookstores, whatever, that says, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot hold you. I, I like that. The will of God will never, lead, will never lead you where the grace of God cannot hold you. God puts you in place, and he will equip you to do the job that he has given you in that place. Because safety and comfort are not our goals. There is something worth fighting for. It's the kingdom of God. You know, when we take a stand, it doesn't mean that everything will be great. It doesn't mean that we'll be absent of conflict. It doesn't mean that we'll live comfortable lives. But taking a stand is important. Esther's purpose was more important than preserving her life. Let me say that again. Esther's purpose was more important than preserving her life. We see that lived out in our culture. We just don't think about it very often. The military, their purpose is more important than preserving their lives. They're willing to put their life on the line. Our law enforcement officers, their purpose is more important than preserving their lives. Our first responders, their purpose is more important than preserving their lives. It's true for you as well. Winston Churchill, in June of 1940, as, as Britain was being bombed by the Germans, gave probably his most famous speech. It finished with this, th- this sentence. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will say this was their finest hour. This was their finest hour. How do you know? How do you know if this day, May 13th, 2018, is your finest hour. How do you know if today is your such a time as this, your one shining moment? Sometimes I think it's clear. Sometimes the stakes are so high that we recognize that if I take a stand here, it's going to impact hundreds and thousands of people. It's going to impact things for generations. Sometimes we recognize that, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's just little steps in the process that God calls us to do you speak up for God's principles and characters at a PTA meeting? Do you publicly oppose activity that God clearly calls sin? How do you, how do you know when you're such a time as this is? You know, on the, on the morning of September 11, 2001, four planes were hijacked, ran into the World Trade Center, um, into the Pentagon, and ultimately into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, um, we, uh, most of us were alive. We remember that very well. We remember those moments. Um, the plane, the United Flight 93 that went into the field, went down. It was aimed for the White House. Their, their target was the White House. And, um, and it went down because the people on board that plane took over the plane, uh, got control of it, and, and crashed the plane. One of the people that uh, we know that story, the story of Todd Beamer, the young father that said that he's talking to the operator on the phone, praying with her, uh, reciting scripture, and then hangs up and says, "Okay, let's roll and and go and do it. Todd Beamer's parents are Dave and Peggy Beamer. They're friends of ours. They were a part of our church in Rockville, Maryland for 12 years. They're great people. Um, Dave, for the last 17 years, has spoken around the nation about, uh, about his son and um, his decision to be involved in that. And the thing that Dave says in his talks that's so incredible is he said, you know what, Todd didn't wake up that morning. Todd didn't wake up that morning and say, today I'm gonna be a hero. His decision on that plane was the culmination of a lifetime of right decisions, of decisions to sacrifice, of decisions to stand for what's right and true, of decisions to take care of those people around him. His moment was September 11th. His, such a time as this was September 11th. But that moment was crafted in all of the decisions that were made day by day, day by day, one piled on top of another, to stand for justice, to stand for sacrifice, to stand for Jesus The question is, are you preparing for that moment if your moment is not today? Make those decisions one day at a time. You know, we talk about impacting 50,000 people with the grace of Jesus in five years. That can't happen if we're all focused on one big moment that we all do together. It happens because we, day by day, seek God and say, God, who do you want me to impact with the grace of Jesus today? How do you want to use me today to expand your kingdom. You know there's a, there's a there's a great question in this as 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 I concluded it's this. Where's where's Jesus in this story? God's name isn't mentioned. We're talking from the old where's Jesus? Where's Jesus in this? I think there's a there's an incredible um, image, a shadow of what's to come. In that the nation of Israel is going to be destroyed if they don't have a savior. If they don't have someone that stands up, that takes the bull by the horn and says, you know what, I'm going to make everything right. Esther's that person. For us, we face an eternity estranged from God in darkness, in isolation, an eternity of pain and suffering. And Jesus says, you know what, I'm coming to make it right. I'm coming to take you out of that realm. I'm coming to cover your sins with my blood. That's where Jesus is in this. Let's pray. God, we come to you right now and just ask that that you would help us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would help us be faithful to you one step at a time. God, um, help us not to make comfort and safety our God's. Help us, God, to not run from a crisis. Help us to recognize that we matter to you and that you have put us in place at the right time, in the right location, and equipped us to be able to stand for you. Help us, God, to say yes to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.